out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Again, that's Acts 2, starting in verse 42 and going through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thank you. You can be seated. In the land of fadeless day, what a beautiful hymn that is. And so encouraging to hear this fine congregation singing about heaven. It certainly is on our heart and in our mind, and we are grateful for each and every one of you uh, who participated in our worship today. We always look forward to coming together, to worship together. <clears throat> for those of you who are visiting with us, we're delighted to have you. encourage you to come back whenever you possibly can. We'll be meeting tonight at 6 o'clock, and we're very grateful for the opportunity that we'll have then, Lord willing. I'd like to continue with our discussion that we began last Sunday. I was talking about a, a lesson where we take a step back, and progress can only be made by sometimes going back and starting over again. And I use the illustration, I'm sure, that you're familiar with the fact that if you go to another place, another city, and you're not familiar with the terrain or the streets and you look, which I had to do, you stop and ask directions. And before I can get to my destination, I've got to go back down the road and then turn right, and then I can start making forward progress. I would never make progress unless I went back. And I think all of us have understood that and have had to do that from time to time in our own lives. We are going to have to stop and go back a step or two, and then we can start making forward progress. And a point that I was making last Sunday, and I make again today, and I'd like to make further elaboration of that, and that is we have to do that in matters of our faith, in the matters of religion. We're going to have to go back, stop, take a step or two back, and then we can make forward progress. And by that I simply mean we're going to have to go back and look at the way it was done back then on the pages of the New Testament. And that's the only way that we're ever going to be able to make spiritual progress and be the kind of people that God wants us to be and be the kind of congregation that God wants us to be. And I was making the point last Sunday about the fact that when you go and you look back in Acts chapter 2 and these great days of the early church, you see that the church grew because of additions and not joiners. And the point that I was making there is those people who were added to the church that you read about in Acts chapter 2, 41, 47, were people who were conscious of their sin. They repented of sin, and they were baptized for sin. They were added to the Lord's church. They were added to the body. They weren't joiners. A lot of people today are just joiners. They want to join up, but they've never dealt with the problem of sin. Well, if you really want to be what God wants you to be, and you really want to be all that you can be as far as a child of God is concerned, then you're going to have to stop, look back, 
and do it the way they did it. And then we talked about the fact of the graciousness of the early church, and I think that's a wonderful lesson for us today. We perhaps need to stop and look back at how gracious they were. They didn't have such a sour disposition about them or just disgruntled type of attitude toward others, but they had favor with all the people. It reminds you of the life of Jesus and him growing up in Luke chapter 2 in the last verse of that chapter. They were a gracious people, and for us to grow like they grew, we'll have to stop, take a step back, and then start over from that point and start going forward. And another point that I was making Sunday, and I just briefly reiterate this particular matter for our benefit, and that is the generosity of the early church. That was amazing. You look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and how generous they were. And that was a serious time. It was an emergency type of measure. And they gave in a remarkable way. And as you go back and read Acts 2 and Acts 4, various passages, uh, the Bible talks about it, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a lot of wonderful Bible passages talking about the generosity of the early church. And if we really want to go back and be like them, then we're going to have to stop and look and study and see what they were like and then implement that into our own life so that we can be the same kind of people that God wants us to be. And then you can make forward progress and be the kind of spiritual people God wants us to be. With that thought in mind, I continue today with this continual looking a step back. And I'm looking at the early church, the church at Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost, next chapter 2. And one of the things that I see, and I, we read it this morning, and thank you for that reading, it's found for us in verse 42, and that they continued steadfastly rather than be involved in some kind of sporadic devotion. He says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were not sporadic in their devotion to God. They were steadfast. Some translations use steadfast. This translation uses devoted. Both words are very fine words which really talk about the devotion and the commitment that the early church had. And if we really want to be the kind of church God wants us to be, we're going to have to implement that kind of devotion, that kind of commitment. It can't be a sporadic, hit or miss type of situation. Now, I don't know of any congregation on our brotherhood that does not have that as a problem. There are some who are dabbling saints. They want to dabble a little bit in the church and dabble a little bit in the world. Dabble a little bit here and dabble a little bit there. To overcome that kind of problem, we're going to have to go back and look at what it was like in the first church, the church that we see in Acts chapter 2. And we see in Acts 2 and verse 42, they were devoted they were committed. There was not this sporadic kind of idea of devotion. Today we'll be faithful, tomorrow we won't. Next week we'll be faithful, not today. There was this continual commitment and devotion and dedication. And that's the way it is. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Paul admonished them, be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be unmovable, be committed, be devoted. Be dedicated and not be sporadic. You know, if I were to take a fruit tree, and growing up we had a lot of fruit trees on the farm, but if I were to take a fruit tree and plant it in the front yard, and I get to looking at that fruit tree and I think, well, I don't like where that, where that is. I'm going to dig that tree up and go and put it at the side of the house. 
So now I dig the fruit tree up and I put it on the side of the house. And then another week passes and I look at that and I say, I really just don't like the where, where we put that fruit tree. I'm going to put that fruit tree, dig it up and put it in the backyard. So now I put the fruit tree in the backyard. If that process continues, will that tree ever bear fruit? And the answer to that is no, it will not. We have got to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord if we want to be pleasing in the sight of God. To do that, we'll have to take a step back and look at it the way they looked at it and see it the way they saw it and be the kind of people they were with regard to Christianity. Continued steadfastness is the need and the desire of every congregation of the Lord. Now, sometimes brethren will become very steadfast. They'll become very devoted. Gospel meeting time comes around, and you'll see brethren participating and, and uh, taking part like they wouldn't otherwise do, and that's a good thing. I'm happy for that. And then you'll have things like elders are going to be appointed or new deacons are going to be appointed. Certain men have qualified themselves according to the divine qualifications. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. And then brethren will kind of get uh, devoted and dedicated over that. And then if a controversy arises and some adversity comes up, then you're going to see people really get devoted and really get engaged with regard to the work of the church. And the point of the matter is, it can't be that way and still be pleasing in the sight of God. It's got to be a continual steadfastness. Whether it be good days or bad days, it's got to be right on the money rather than some kind of sporadic kind of devotion, dabbling here and dabbling there. The early church was committed. That verse 42 needs to be studied and carefully analyzed. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted. They were committed. And it wasn't a sporadic type of measure that we're talking about here. Now, there are times... Reversals of life come along, difficulties of life, and heaven knows we have them. Problems come along, and now somebody sees, you know what, I really need to get focused on this matter of faithfulness to Christ, and that is a good thing. And may that happen to us, if that is what makes us become more faithful. And in turn, we become more faithful and dedicated, and now we become the people that we really ought to be. Be steadfast unmovable. Be committed. Do not be sporadic in your conviction to the cause of Christ. If you want to be pleasing in the sight of God, then you're going to be convicted and dedicated. Now, another important matter that I'd like to mention, which I hope will be of help to you as we study this matter of Acts chapter 2, comes for us in verse 46. And one of the things that's very clear in 46 is that Christianity was a daily matter for them and not just Sunday only. And they were committed to the work of the Lord every single day. And this is something that just about comes from the page here. And I'll read verse 46 and other passages could be read as well. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, a beautiful passage of Scripture. Then I'm going to turn over here to uh, Acts chapter 5 and the verse of verse 42. 
And in that particular passage, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The point that I'm making here is that they were about this every day. They were about this matter of being faithful to God and practicing their religion every single day, every single week, every week out of the month, and every month out of the year. It wasn't just on Sunday. It was a matter in which they were doing this every day. And they did this with such frequency, and they were filled with joy because of the matter. He says, and day by day, attending the temple together. They were involved in this matter. They did not put their religion on like a robe or a quilt on Sunday morning and then take it off, but it was like a ray of sunlight and a beam of light every single day. Now, growing up, we had, and I'm sure it's still that way among some, it's still that way with me, that when I'd get up on Sunday morning, I'd put on my Sunday morning clothes, these Sunday morning shoes and my Sunday morning clothes. Then when I'd go home after worship service, I'd take my Sunday clothes off and put my Sunday shoes up because for next week there'll be another Sunday and I'll be wearing my Sunday clothes and my Sunday shoes. Those clothes, those shoes are devoted to that particular day. But now some people do that with regard to their Christianity. They will put their Christianity on on Sunday, but they will not have it on Monday and on Tuesday. It will not be a daily thing with regard to their life and their practice. That can be seen because of the foulness of their speech. And it can be seen because of the immodesty of their apparel. And it can be seen in the deceitfulness of their dealings. And it can be seen in the worldliness of their living. And it can be seen in the meanness of their demeanor. They've got their Sunday clothes on on Sunday. But every day of the rest of the week, they're like everybody else. They're like the world. For me to be what God wants me to be, I'm going to have to look back and just see what kind of life those particular men and women of the first century were living. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, So we do not lose heart, talking about great persecution and suffering which the apostles faced in the time. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. How? Day by day. There is an outer self in which continues to go downhill. As much as we try our very best, still we realize that we're losing ground, physically speaking, as we age and as we go along. But be that as it may, our inner self is renewed day by day. We continue to practice this love of God and faithfulness to the Word of God. Every day, every day of the week, and every week of the month, and every month of the year, because that's the way it was in the first century, and that's the way God wants it now. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, it's an amazing verse talking about the church at Berea. And disciples there were more noble than those of Thessalonica, the text says, because they searched the Scriptures day by day, to see if those things were so. That's a noble, noble passage about those noble Christians. Nobility is ascribed to people who will study and who will learn 
and who will be God's faithful people every day. It's not just on Sunday. It's every single day. That's the way they were. That's the way God expects us to be. Turn with me to the book of Luke, and I'm in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 26, a powerful passage. And in Luke chapter 9 and 23, you'll read this following. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now you can read on down through that wonderful passage, and well, we should. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, verse 26, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now the point of the passage, of course, is the fact that Jesus said, you've got to pick up your cross and you've got to carry it every day. Isn't it interesting how he uses the word cross there? I wonder what he means by cross. The word cross can only mean one thing in that passage. Death. You must put yourself to death and put him first on a daily basis. I'll read it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The point for the present consideration is New Testament Christianity, as we read about it in the pages of the New Testament, is a daily matter. Sometimes we just put on a bright face on Sunday, but it means much more than that. If you've been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, you need to understand that it is a matter of dedication of life every day, out of every week, out of every month, and out of every year. That's what it means to become a Christian. And you can do that because that's what they did in the days of the New Testament. Did not Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. But I want to press along because I have matters that need to be considered very carefully as I look at this Acts chapter 2 and particularly verse 46 where I am right now. And one of the things concerns me, it should always concern us and it should always be on our minds. And that is what is said here in verse 46 about the unity which this church had. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And then while I'm on this point, let me read Acts chapter 2 and the verse of verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. These are amazing passages that talk about the unity of the church of our Lord in the first century. It talks about how God wants us to be together and how that God wants us to be of one mind and one heart, of one accord. And that's something that we must always work toward in order to accomplish. These people knew and they did their best to fulfill what Jesus had said in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. 
John chapter 17, he goes about this particular matter. It's a wonderful discussion. We sometimes should probably just focus our minds on the 17th chapter of the book of John. He talks about the truth. Sanctify them in thy word, O Lord, thy word is truth. Goes on through there in about verse 20. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I hope that you got the thrust of that great verse, where it is talking about the importance of being one, of being together, of one heart, one soul, one mind. Now, this is different, what we're studying out of the New Testament, from what you see in the religious climate today. What you see in the religious climate today is more of a unity in diversity type of idea. The unity in diversity type of idea is let's just agree to get along. Even though you hold a position, I hold a different position. These particular positions of variance with each other may even be at variance with regard to the Word of God. Let's just go ahead and get together and let's act like these particular matters don't exist. Let's pretend they don't. That's unity in in adversity, diversity. And what the Bible here, though, on the other hand, is saying, you got to be of one mind. The church is to be together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I'm sort of paraphrasing 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I'll get to it in a minute. But the Bible is trying to tell us it's got to be more than that. You see, truth is not a subjective thing. We read in, in John 17, verse 17, he says in that particular passage, Sanctify them in thy truth, O Lord. Thy word is true. It is true. Truth is a present reality. Truth is not some kind of subjective type of thing whereby if this person thinks that X is true and this person thinks that X is not true, both of them can be okay. We can still get along. That's not what the Bible talks about with regard to biblical truth. It's an absolute. It is God's Word. It is reality. And we can know that that is the case. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It is not a matter of subjectivism. It is absolute. It's not going to change over a period of years. I remember buying a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannicas one time, and I enjoyed reading the Encyclopedia Britannicas, but part of the deal was to give an updated volume every year because new knowledge is coming along, and you update your set of Britannicas by getting a new volume every year from the company. That's not the way it works with the Bible. The truth is absolute. It is set. And as we'll study tonight from the great book of Jude... It has been once for all delivered unto the saints. It's not going to be changed. Ten years from now, it's still going to be true. Sometimes in studying the Bible with people, they'll say to me, I'd like to see what my preacher says about that. And I say, well, that's a good idea. Bring your preacher to the Bible study. And I have no questions or qualms about that because I know The truth is still going to be the truth no matter who comes to that Bible study. No matter what he says or what he thinks, it will still be the truth. And I've always felt confident in studying the Bible with other people, 
and uh, with other preachers. Because in that regard, I knew that I was armed with truth. And it does not change. It's still going to be the same. And you and I have got to come to the realization that's the way it is. We need to understand what that truth is and be united in it. Not some kind of denominational unity and diversity idea which the Bible does not teach. Now I'm ready to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Perhaps you want to mark it in the pages of your Bible. Paul dealing with the problems of division at 1 Corinthians, in Corinth. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now that's quite a detail right there, that everyone agree that they be in the same mind and in the same judgment. We've got to think the same way here. We've got to be together on this particular matter. And of course what he's talking about is New Testament Christianity. Let us be united and be together with one heart and one soul and one mind. They had all things common. They were in one accord, Luke says, Acts chapter 2, and the verse of verse 46. Now I've got something to say here. When we come together on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, we divide up into different classes. And there's not a thing wrong with that. That's perfectly scriptural. Because classes are not worship service. We're dividing up into classes and we have a class because we know that we have various educational levels. We have people with various educational and social backgrounds. We have people who are of different age levels and categories and we want the Bible to be meaningful and present to them, to reach them and help them in that particular matter. And I'm very, very grateful for the fine teachers that we have here. They are very sacrificial, and they're here to help you, and their intent is for you to understand the Bible, whatever Bible class you happen to be in. And I don't think there can be a more satisfying work than the work of a teacher, teaching people. And I don't think there's a more satisfying experience than to see a student where their light, the light comes on for the first time and they see it and they grasp it and they understand it and it's satisfying to know I pass this along to them. But may those diversities never cause factions among us. We're all one congregation here. We assemble in one auditorium here to worship God. This is worship. This is not Bible class. There's a difference between Bible classes over here and worship in here. And everyone is expected to come together because we're one body. And we are not divided with regard to the body of Christ here. Though we may try to facilitate and help the educational training of different age levels, but we're all together. And whether it be in a young college age or a young high school grade or elderly, we're all part of the same congregation. And may we never be divided over that matter. 
Sometimes in the programs that we have and the wonderful aspects that we do to promote unity and fellowship, sometimes we'll think, well, that's just for that group. That's not for me. Oh, that's just for that group over there. That's not for me. That's just for them. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful because we're all together in one heart and one mind. The wonderful Bible classes that we have, very scriptural. The wonderful activities that we engage in are wonderful and fine. But may we never get the idea, well, that's just for that group right there, or that's just for that group right over there. We do not divide the church up into groups and parties and factions. We're all together, one heart, one mind. Because I'll tell you what will happen if we don't. You'll drive down the road someday, you're looking for a congregation to worship in, and you know what you'll find? You'll find out there on the marquee, traditional worship, 9 o'clock. Contemporary worship, 10 o'clock. Or you'll come along and you'll find a congregation and it'll go something like this. We don't worship together on Sunday night. We divide up into people's homes on Sunday night, and some will go to this home and some will go to that home. And we don't come together, as the Bible teaches, on Sunday night. We go to this house or we go to that house. How could elders oversee a situation like that when part of the congregation's there and part of the congregation's over here, part of the congregation is over here? The point that I'm driving at is that the church of the New Testament didn't do that. They were together of one heart and one mind. And we must not allow us to lose that sight. We can't afford to fracture the body. It's got to be together. We worship together in one place. I'm not talking about Bible classes. That's not worship. But we worship together in one place, all of us together, and we got young children here where they're learning about worship, and they're learning these wonderful songs. They're hearing scriptures read. They're seeing these fine men up here leading us in the Lord's table and the ordinances. They're growing up to see these particular matters. They're not off in some kind of worship service all for themselves or by themselves. They're here together because the church is a worshiping body that comes together. And worships together. And you got older folks, like myself. We all come together. And isn't it exciting to see these young, younger men get up and lead in worship and say prayers? And I just feel with so such pride in a Christian way. When I see these young men standing up and leading us in worship, maybe saying a prayer, leading a song or reading the Scripture. We're all together in this, brethren. And we cannot divide the body. It stays together. That's the way it was in the first century. Elders make decisions for the unity of the body of Christ. Don't make decisions that will fracture the body of Christ. They were of one heart, they were of one soul, they were together, and that's what it means to be a child of God in the New Testament. And that's what it means to be a child of God today. 
Let me add a further consideration to this particular matter because I'm taking a step back and I'm looking back and I'm looking at how was it back then and how can it be or should it be today. And one of the things that I see from this passage that I've read in Acts chapter 2, and I want to emphasize it, I see them as being happy people. If you look at Acts chapter 2, particularly this verse 46, 47, then you're going to see something about that particular matter. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Why, it's a wonderful statement about the church of the Lord. How happy they really were. You know, what would it be like if everybody just had such a glum expression upon themselves? And what kind of matter would it be with regard to others in the community if we, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, we just all dressed in black suits and had a frown on our face? Why would anyone be a, want to be a part of that? But when I read about the New Testament church, I read about happy people. I read about people who rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. People who were happy. They met together. They ate together. Notice the hospitality of these people. And they had favor one with another and those on the outside. They were people who were happy people. The best advertisement a product will ever have is the happiness that the person has who has purchased it. He's happy about that product. He's glad he's got it. And it's the best advertisement that businessman or that product will ever have. You know, stop and think about it. What do we really want anyway? The world is out there in a feverish pursuit. Oh, they're out there after it. And you've got to stop and ask yourself the question, what does the world really want? Somebody said, well, the world wants money. Well, okay, I see that a lot. But is that what we really want? Is that what the world really wants? Well, the world really wants physical pleasure and satisfying the desires of the flesh. Well, we see that a lot. Is that what the world really wants, though? I think it is something deeper than that. What is the basic pursuit of every individual? Stop and think about it yourself. Isn't the basic desire of every individual the desire to be happy? Isn't that what everybody wants? And they're going about it in different directions. Some are trying to acquire happiness by means of money. Some try to acquire happiness by means of physical pursuit. Some are trying to acquire happiness by means of the best physical, healthy body that they can have. 
Well, let me ask you a question. What good is the best, healthiest body you can have worth when your heart and your soul is depressed and as black as it can be on the inside? And what value does money really have? If your heart is so depressed and unsatisfied, what is the real pursuit? What is the thing that we really want most and what we need most with regard to our personality and our well-being? Is it not happiness? And the Christian should be the most happy person in the world because my sins have been forgiven and I'm looking for a great day in glory that God is coming again and He's going to take His people to be with Him forever and ever. I'm convinced that the early church was a happy church and that they didn't go around with a glum type of attitude. They didn't go around with a bad countenance. Oh, they're difficult days and there are days in which difficulties come up, I know. But their demeanor was a happy demeanor. And they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be said. If I want to go forward, i got to look back and see those people were happy people and the reason why. It was a satisfying thing for them to be a Christian. And other people saw that and wanted to be a part of it. And that church grew. Because they were meeting the needs of the people and what they really needed. Now, i got another point I want to make here, and I'll try to be uh, quick. And you've been very, very attentive. Thank you for that. But when I take a step back, and this means a lot to me, and I look at the early church, I look at the kind of preaching that they preached. And what they heard in their assemblies was not some kind of soothing sermonette which make everybody feel good when they left the building. And I've taught a number of people and continue to do so. And the greatest book on homiletics is your Bible. Homiletics is a study of how to preach a sermon. And the best way to learn how to preach a sermon is to look at the sermons in the Bible because there's not a better book in the world with more sermons in it Great sermons, Old and New Testament, than the Bible. And if you want to know how to preach a sermon or what a sermon ought to be like, read the Bible and study the Bible and look at the sermons that they had in the Old Testament and the New Testament particularly and the sermons that are being preached out there now. Carol and I went to another state one time, been several years back. Never forget it. Visiting, went to the worship service. Preacher got up there. 15, 20 minutes into that sermon, I'm still trying to figure out what is he trying to say. I can't figure it out. And then lo and behold, by the time he finishes, he says, I hope you all think seriously about this, and then sat down. And I thought, I wonder if anybody got anything out of that. Let's see what a New Testament sermon's like. Let's see what it's not like. And then I'm going to talk about what it is like. A New Testament sermon did not talk about the Roman Empire. You'll have references to it in the writings, but not in the sermons. 
They didn't talk about how bad the Roman Empire was, though it is in full swing and very dictatorial at the time. A New Testament sermon did not talk about the savagery of slavery. It was a social matter of the day, but it didn't talk about that that much in the sermons. You'll have reference to the matter in the book of Philemon, but in the sermons it is never brought up. New Testament sermons did not bring up the matter of philosophies, whether it be Thales or whether it be uh, the pre-Socratics or Plato, Aristotle, whomever it might be. Those sermons were not filled with those kinds of matters. And New Testament sermons did not have plays, books, that kind of thing that were popular for that day and that particular time. New Testament sermons didn't go like that. I'll tell you how a New Testament sermon went. Number one, they made you think about your sin. They put sin right in the front, and they were very bold about that. This is sin, and it condemns your soul before God. But they didn't leave you there. They were going on to tell you what you needed to do about the sin and the grace of God. New Testament sermons were sermons that had Jesus at the focus. He's the Redeemer. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament passages. He's the one who's lived and died and was raised again. Without Jesus, there wouldn't be any hope for obtaining eternal life. I'll tell you what a New Testament sermon was like. A New Testament sermon was like, here are the conditions of pardon. This is what it means to believe. You need to repent of your sins and confess your faith, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. You will be added to the church which Jesus purchased with his own blood. And they were very focused on that. Jesus went about preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. New Testament sermons urged you to repent of your sin, urged you to change your life. This is what you need to do to become a child of God. This is what you need to do to repent of your sin. It wasn't some kind of sermon where you're sitting there wondering, what is this guy saying, and does he have a point? His sermon is filled with all kinds of religious talk, but nobody knows what it means. And it's so ambiguous, nobody understands what one's supposed to do or not do. New Testament sermons weren't that way. New Testament sermons were cogent and focused and meaningful, urging people to do what God wanted them to do. And the church grew and became strong. And if we want to be what God wants us to be, we're going to have to take a step back. We're going to have to look and see what they did, and then we can make forward progress. And I urge that today for this beautiful congregation of people whom I know love God, and you love each other, and you love the Word of God. I pray those who have never obeyed the gospel of Christ, you'll do so today. I'm urging you to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized into Christ, immersed in water for the remission of sins, because that's the way they did it in the New Testament. That's the way we do it today. For those who have been unfaithful, repent of that and confess your fault. And he'll forgive you, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. That's the way they did it in the New Testament, and that's the way we do it today. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?